Today's reading is Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 1008 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's Word. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention, our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, thank you for bringing me from Grand Rapids. Thank you, God, for the, the way you collect people. Wherever, Jesus, wherever your word goes out, communities of people spring up and they start to commit themselves to each other. And they say, hey, we were beggars looking for bread. We found some bread. And then they invite other beggars to find the same bread. And some of us come today with broken hearts. And maybe no one really knows how deeply the brokenness goes, but here we are, and some of us come today with overflowing joyous hearts, and probably all of us with a level of distraction because of the culture we live in, and our own human hearts that wander. Thank you that you teach us that we're actually more broken and worse off than we think we are, and at the same time, so more affectionately loved than we could hope for. In your name, amen. Well, it's an honor. It's an honor to be here. And, uh, where'd Mark go? There you are. My memory of Mount Hermon is that I watched you for a week, not just you. <laughs> and, and I very quickly saw the leadership in you. I just saw key moments when tenderness came out of you instead of 
one-upmanship or something like that. And I think I called that out in you. I think I said to you something along the lines of, I think God has a call in your life. So that's what I remember. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more about myself. Uh, God loves his bride to be multicultural, multi-ethnic. In other words, it's almost like he wants his bride. That's, the, that's us people, right? So he's the bridegroom and his bride is us. He wants his bride to look a certain way. And he loves the, the, the diversity and actually honors him. If only one sort of political persuasion or people group follows a leader, even if all of those people follow that leader, they're a great leader, but if lots of different people groups follow a leader, they're a really great leader. And Jesus is the greatest. And he wants, so it's not, it's not that we're trying to be hip and diverse so we look nice. It's that's the way God chooses his bride to look. And uh, my ancestors are Dutch and Christian Reformed, so that's the denomination. But watch what God did. I was born, and a month later, we went to a little place called Celeryville, Ohio. And guess what they grow there? <laughs> Just Dutch people in this church. But my father, who's an evangelist, was reaching across, and there were migrant workers from Mexico already there in the celery fields. And he felt a call on his life to reach out to them and planted a church. And now I, I remember be, being at the dedication, I was four years old. I don't remember my father's feelings at the time. He told me later, but he said, the day we dedicated the Mexican church for the Mexican migrants, I felt something was wrong with it. Why weren't we together? They spoke English too. We moved from there to Florida, so I'm a preacher's kid. We moved from there to Florida. He was a church planter, and the very first convert was a Native American called Mike Penqua. And he became so close to our family that he was there for supper usually several days a week. We moved from there to Grand Rapids, Michigan, into an African-American neighborhood. So most of my white friends didn't dare come down there. They felt a little threatened. And... My friends were mixed from many races, but in my neighborhood, it was the, my black friends. When I was 13 years old, on April 4, 1968, does the date ring a bell with anybody? Yes. Martin Luther King is shot. My dad, I think he's 39, he's the same age as Dr. King. So if Dr. King were alive, he'd be 88, because my father's 88. Walter Cronkite is saying on the television, for you young people, that he's a news guy. <laughs> he's saying on the television that King has gotten shot. I know my father would want to know this, so I run upstairs and get him and bring him down. He's standing next to me. I'm sitting on the floor, and um, just the television screen on. And I notice next to me there's little, little drops in the carpet. And I look up and my father's weeping. I've never seen my dad cry. Now, sure, surely he had before that, but I didn't see him 
weep until then. So those, those tears dropped like seeds into my soul. They evaporated, the tears did, but not really. They were in my soul. So that's my growing up days. And the, the church, my father is calling the church to welcome in people that were African Americans. My father spoke about Martin Luther King in ways that no other white people did with respect. Years later, fast forward, I get married. And Melanie and I decide, let's start a family. It didn't work. As she used to say, not for lack of trying. <laughs> That's my wife. Um, eventually, we decided we're going to adopt. By that time, we'd been married, I think, six years. And they said to us, if you want a white child, it'll be another five years. But children of color, there's lots of them that need to be adopted. That's part of the legacy of race in our culture. So we adopted three children. They're now 35, 32, and 29. And they're all mixed race, black, white. That changed my life. Changed my life. So God prepared me to be a pastor in a mixed race, multicultural church. I can see it now back from my childhood. Amazing what God does. I used to ask my dad, why are we in this neighborhood? Why can't we move out there without my white friends? And here's what he said. Jesus moves toward need, not away from it. <laughs> okay, Dad. Let me, let me say a word about how this changed my life. Well, my son, who if he walked by, you'd say, you'd say he's either Arabic or he's black. That's, you know, he's mixed race. When he was 16, since so 32 now, I would sometimes, when we'd go into a store, I would stay outside, I'd say, just a minute, I'll be right in. And he didn't know what I was doing, but I was watching him go in the store and then how they related to him. And then I would walk in behind him and notice the difference. Things like that. Got real personal for me. So um, he made me pastor of this mixed race church. And one of the ways I speak about our church is that we are mixed nuts. And maybe that sounds like a put down. Um, we're, we're a pretty strange group of people. I mean, there's no normal people in my church. <laughs> you know what? I don't think there's any normal people in this church either. You, you know what's normal? You, they come in and they look oh, kind of well put together. It looks like they took a shower this morning or whatever. And, and you get to know their life and find out, oh, wow. And um, it's such an affectionate term for our church now that every Christmas I get several cans of mixed nuts. <laughs> and they, we kind of you know, give it to each other. In mixed nuts, the, the nuts don't sort of get blended together. You know, it's, it's, right? it doesn't turn into a sort of bland vanilla or something like that. They, each nut has its own taste, its own flavor, and its own texture. And then together, they taste better yet. 
So that's just, that's just a little sort of introduction of myself and my congregation. I'm going to talk about this text a little bit because what happens here in Acts chapter 6 is the very first time the church runs into, and it happens right away, doesn't it? The church runs into this cultural problem. And what happened is, if you got the text in front of you, I'm going to refer to the text. You don't have to have it in front of you, but if you've got it, I'm old school, so I like carry a Bible around. If you got it on your phone, that's okay too. So what happens there is that it, it's right, it's right away, it's right in front of you that Hellenistic Jews, right, are being left out of the daily distribution of they just call it daily distribution. I think it's a food, bread. So the Hellenistic, well, who are these Hellenistic Jews? Well, some of the history of Israel is that they, they got taken over and sort of overrun the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then, and then the Jews got spread all over the Roman Empire. So they're everywhere. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, it... Peter is preaching, and there's, they're from the Parthians and the Medes and the Persians, and they're from Cyrene and North Africa and Egypt, and, and 15 different culture groups are mentioned, and they're all Jews, but they actually are of these different cultures, and most of them speak Greek. It's kind of like the English language today, which is kind of an international business language all over the place. Well, Greek was like that back then. So culturally, they were Greek, even though ethnically they were Jewish. And when the church got going, these um, people that were uh, Greek culturally were sort of on the outside. They, obviously, the communication didn't go to them like it did to the Hebrew-speaking Jews. So, right, there's the Hellenistic Jews and then the Hebraic Jews. So the Hebraic Jews, they're like true blue. Like, they know... I mean, it kind of goes like this. This is what I imagine anyway. They eat the same food. They tell the same jokes. They make decisions the same way. They know the same music. Whereas the Hellenistic Jews, it was all different. Much different. And the Hellenistic Jew widows are being left out of the distribution. It's about economics, and communication. You see what's going on here? By the way, if you, if you go look at Peter's sermons in chapter 2, let me go look it up again. There's all these people. I'm in chapter 2, verse uh, 8. No, verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So then now they're Jews who speak Hebrew or Aramaic, and they have a Galilean accent about them. That's where all the disciples are from. And then he says, How is it that each of us here in his own native language, and then here, here's the list, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Now watch what Peter does. 
Verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lift up his voice and addressed them. Listen to what he says. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known. It's like he's talking to his own group. Peter's got a lot to learn. If you know more of the history of Peter, he had to have some watershed moments with the Holy Spirit, didn't he? To learn this isn't just about different languages and colors. This is a cultural issue here. And you're doing inside talk. I love the Bible because it doesn't clean all this stuff up. So, if you know the names of the disciples, um, I'm not going to quiz you right now. In fact, I couldn't rattle off all 12 of them either. It, Judas Iscariot is the last one. But it's Peter, James, and John, Bartholomew, and Thomas. What's Thomas's? How does Thomas get described? Poor guy. It's like his last name, isn't it? Thomas, who? The doubter. <laughs> All of those names are Hebrew names. What are the names of all of the deacons that are chosen? What cultural group do they come from? And the answer is from the Greek-speaking group. Now I want you to notice that. They, they have their first cultural issue and a certain culture group is left out of the communication or probably not on purpose. They just don't have the, they don't, it's who you know, right? And the economic, it's an economic problem. And it's, it's become a problem and there's so many people there that the disciples say the 12 who are the leaders of the church, and remember they're all of the old school, true blue Hebrew group, all 12 of them, say we, we can't deal with this because we've got to keep preaching and teaching, but we need to take care of this issue. So they found people who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and then subtly, you just have to know the text, Every single, no, let me read the names. You did a nice job with those names. Did you practice that a little bit or not? No? Wow. Usually you have to go to seminary to get all that stuff. They were right. They were right. So here we go. Okay. Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, I think you said. Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they said before the apostles, and they prayed their hands, they prayed and laid their hands on them. So they're all from the Greek-speaking group. So here's what happened. You just imagine before that the um, people would knock on the doors, basically Hebrew leaders giving the food distribution to both the Hebrew widows and the Greek-speaking widows. And now an entire new leadership group is brought in. And they're all from the offended group. They're all from the outside group. And it balances out the leadership. And now even the Hebrew-speaking widows, you know, what do they say? Oy vey! Or, I mean, I don't know the Hebrew, but you know, they, they open the door and, Oy vey! It's a Greek-speaking leader. I mean, I don't even get my own Hebrew-speaking leader. In other words, those leaders serve both the inside and the outside group now. And notice that Stephen isn't just a waiter of tables and a distribu distri distributor of food. He becomes the first martyr of the church. And then Philip, who's in here too, he becomes an evangelist. 
So it's amazing what happened at that point. They shared power and they shared leadership from the from how does my how do my kids say it? From Jump Street. Okay, now I'm going to do a little application, and then I'll pray. So I'm not going to be long. How am I doing on time? Okay? All right. So when I'm in seminary, I get to know Pastor Dante Venegas, and he describes himself as a black Puerto Rican from New York City. And he's my partner in ministry, although that happened later. So this is while I'm in seminary and getting to know him, and he takes me to the prison on Sunday morning. Um, and he spent about 20 years of his life in and out of jails and prisons. And one of them was Leavenworth. I mean, this is a serious federal prison. And become wonderfully converted out of drug addiction and one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. By the way, one of the things I notice about drug addicts is a lot of them know a lot of stuff. And a lot of them are very artistically um, Anyway, Pastor Dante, 19 years older than me, and when he went into the prisons, he was um, he was like Billy Graham. I mean, he just he could preach, and it, it was amazing. Well, I became his partner in ministry, and about two years into it, so we're co-pastors on purpose because we have a multi-ethnic church, and we're at a meeting, not a worship service, but a congregational meeting, and we're going back and forth and. And he's saying something to me, Pastor Dave, what do, you, what do you think of this? And I would say back to him, and Dante, what do you think of this? And we would partner together, and uh, Dante, what do you think of that? And Dante, would you lead this? And he would say to me, Pastor Dave, can you do this? Have you noticed any differences here? You did. So afterwards, we're in his office, and he would let me know when things weren't right. I didn't have to guess. Um, he wasn't nicey-nice. He loved me dearly. And he was mad. <laughs> he slams the door. I said, you're upset. Yes! I said, well, what's going on? He said, you don't even get it. You don't realize what's going on. I said, no, tell me. He said, I kept calling you by your title, Pastor Dave, and you would use my first name. And, yeah, I said, that's your name. And he says, then he does that. He says, sit down, I got something to tell you. I said, I said, he said, you are blowing it with all the African American families. They are watching you and you don't even know what you're doing. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you need to use my title every time we're in public. It's a title of affection and respect. And then he gave me a little history lesson and he said, until about the mid-60s, the only black man in the United States who, who, who wouldn't lose his job or his income just because of what he said was the black pastor because he's the only one who was paid by black people generally. And he usually was the most um, educated man in the community. He was the one they went to. He was like chief of the tribe. And the men in the congregation still to this day, but he said the men in the congregation, in black congregations, would get called by their first name, or hey, or boy, or something like that. And they're going to have at least one man in their congregation who is always addressed by his title of respect. 
And furthermore, he says to me, I'm kind of shrinking in my seat. He said to me, and if the white men in the town drove Cadillacs because they owned businesses, they would scrimp and save and do whatever they could to get their pastor a Cadillac if at all possible, which changed my view of black pastors driving Cadillacs right away. He says, of course there's problems in the black church, and of course there's pastors in the black church who have, who have used that in ways that are bad. And some of them are members in our church. They're refugees from black churches. But he said, if you don't understand that history, you have no idea why. Have you, he says, haven't you noticed that black families in this church never allow their kids to address you by your first name? Never again did I address him in public. Really, he was private by his first name. And then he said this, in the African-American church, if you want to get something done, generally speaking, you need to go through the pastor. He said in white churches, you need to go through the right committee and have the right policy. He said they both have their strengths and weaknesses. I learned so much in 20 minutes that I thought I knew. And I realized this is not about color. This is about culture. Now, how do you apply that to the sacramental congregation? It doesn't mean that you all have to now watch your P's and Q's and call Mark, Pastor Mark, every time you see him. There's a different culture here, I get that. But if you don't, if you don't even listen to it well and become a student, I had to become a student. I thought I knew because I got raised in the family that I got raised in, in a black community, but I still didn't know. By the way, I'm the only white boy I know whose parents ordered Time Magazine, Ebony, and Jet. <laughs> if you, some of you are old enough to know this. I'm the only white boy I've ever run into that had those three magazines. The reason my parents did that is they wanted us to be truly multicultural. In spite of that home, I didn't get it. Why? You can call it white privilege or Hebrew privilege if you want. Here's what I am saying. It isn't about different colors up here or over there or even walking by or coming in your door so much as it is are we as a people picking up the same sensitivity that the Holy Spirit had to teach in Acts chapter 6. I had to learn. I had to become a student of other cultures because I was in the majority culture and could just ride that. So it's humility. If, if this gathering is shot through with humility, that is attractive to whoever comes through the door. A posture of learning. Look, I'm one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I found a fountain of life and a thirsty man drank from it and now I want to tell other people this is where you can get the living water. That's cross-cultural, isn't it? You can say amen. Okay. I'd like to close this way. Um, I'd like, uh, Mark, you prayed for me. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like you to stand next to me, and I'd like to pray for you. Um, one of the joys I've had this morning, come on up.
And one of the joys I have this morning is just to sit under your leadership and see the kind of culture you're trying to build here. And, and my heart was warmed watching that. If I lived in Sacramento, I would want you to be my pastor. So would you put your hands out? And congregation, we do this in our church all the time. You lift your hands this way. I won't pray too long so you won't get tired, okay? Lord, I pray for this pastor. I pray for a, a humility to settle over him in deeper ways, because there's already humility in this man. He wears it. Especially in this arena. And not just him, but he stands here as a representative of this community of faith. So that there, especially among the whites, who we need to learn some things and we need to be in a posture of learning. So may his posture be to learn. May he not be afraid of making cultural mistakes. We're going to make cultural mistakes. We're part of the church. Our calling card is forgiveness. So let's make some mistakes together. So I pray for Mark to be able to, in a way, sin boldly just because he's going to have to lead. And he'll make some mistakes and give him people around him who um, will die on this mountain, so to speak. Um, so that the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, looks like you are calling her to look. Beautiful, multicultural, honoring our Lord Jesus Christ because he's the original multiculturalist. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.